what we're seeing in romance fiction has changed unbelievably from 50 years ago in terms of sexual content, gender diversity, the issues that are dealt with. That the power of romance that most people do not appreciate is that you can write about anything. You can write about all the challenges of human life in a way that readers will find approachable, that they will relate to, they will think about. There's nothing else that does that. I'm a little prejudiced, but still, it's an incredibly powerful genre. That was Radcliffe, the next in our Trailblazers series. Welcome, everyone, to Fate of Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. And I'm Jennifer Prokop. I am a romance reader and critic. And Radcliffe is the founder of Bold Strokes Books, which is an important LGBTQ publisher. She is a writer and one of the important and longtime voices for lesbian and queer romance. Today, we'll be talking about her journey to romance, um, the founding of Bold Strokes Books, why it is important for LGBTQ publishers to exist, and how the romance landscape for um, queer literature, queer bookstores, um, and queer romance has changed in the many years that she has been reading, writing, and publishing. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Radcliffe. We're thrilled to have you. Well, thank you for asking me. I'm really glad to be here. So we're really interested in journeys. Um, in we've talked so much over the years about our journeys as romance readers and you know writers. So could we start there? Let's start with how you came to write and write romance. Um, I think that part of my story, I'm sure you've heard many times before, which is almost and probably experienced yourself, which is anyone who writes has always written things. Um, for me, as a small girl growing up, I will say this, in the 50s, um, there were very few things that I saw in the world around me that reflected what I wished I could do on television or the books that I read. Um, the games that people played, although I was fortunate to have an older brother, so I learned to play a lot of sports. So I started writing things when I was really young, um, putting girls and then women in the scenarios that I didn't get to see anywhere, including in the books that I read. But I didn't really think about writing anything big, quote unquote, until I was actually a resident in um, a surgery resident. And I was really, really busy and pressured. And it was a world where I also felt like a little bit of an outsider because I was a woman in surgery when there weren't a lot of women in surgery either. So I started writing just to kind of express the parts of myself that weren't being expressed. So I, I wrote my first full length, what I would now call my first lesbian novel in 1980 with absolutely no anticipation that it would ever become anything except this thing that I had written that pleased me. No one ever read it. No one ever saw it. And I just put it in a drawer. And as the years went by, I did that again and again. When I had free time, often on my vacations, I would write another one of those until I had eight of them in my drawer. But I never really, maybe my girlfriends at the time would read them or one of my best friends, but no one else ever read them. And I never anticipated that I would be a quote unquote author. The difference between growing up in the 50s and the 80s, did you still feel that there was this dearth of stories that you wanted to read even then? Like there was no like little change between growing up and then being a doctor. That's a great question. And the answer is there was a change, but it wasn't enough of a change or a big enough of a change. And that's another part of my story, a cool part of my story, actually. When I was 12, I used to read everything I could find. And mostly they were paperbacks that came out of the drugstores and supermarkets and whatever my mom was reading. Same. And I, I <laughs> somehow, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I somehow, I don't know how, found this book written by Ann Bannon called Bebo Brinker. And I was 12. And it's the first time I ever read anything that had two women involved in it. And I was, you know, 12. 
And I was starting to realize that I wasn't like everyone else. And this book really made a huge impression on me. But I also knew it was probably something that I wasn't supposed to show anybody else. And I kept it behind the other books in my bookcase. And I didn't hear the word lesbian until I was 18 years old. So it wasn't that. It was a sense in the world around me that what I was feeling was probably not what I ought to be feeling. But that book made a huge impression on me. And um, I went to school in Philadelphia, where one of the country's oldest um, gay and lesbian bookstores was established, Giovanni's Room. And in 1973, I discovered in this bookstore um, that had two shelves and about 10 books, the first lesbian romance that Nyad Press ever published called The Latecomer by Sarah Aldridge. Um, And it was the first lesbian romance I had ever read, although interestingly, from a historical point of view, they did not call them romances. They called them lesbian novels at the time for about another eight years. And I read that book like a million times. Can you ground us with a date for this? 1973. Now that's when you found it. Was that also when it was published? That's when it was published, 1973. Nyad Press was established in 1972 um, by Barbara Greer and two other women. Was Nyad exclusively publishing lesbian novels? Yes. Barbara Greer and Sarah Aldridge and Muriel Crawford were the three women who established it. And that went on to be the premier lesbian press until the late 90s when Barbara sold it and it changed names. So I would go there every week looking for another book and there was never another book. They published one in uh, nine months later and then maybe another nine months. And then eventually they would do three or four a year and then two a month, which was like, but that took years to get there. Sure. So I started writing my own and I didn't really think about publishing them. Can you tell us what kind of stories were these? My very first one was a Western, of course, (laughs) because, you know, when I grew up, I wanted to be a cowboy. Yeah. Right. I had a little star, you know, and I had six shooters And I played soldiers a lot, too, Um, which actually, when I tell you about what I write, you'll probably understand exactly why I write what I write. But, you know, I was the I was the girl on the block with all boys and I had an older brother. So, you know, I had six shooters and rifles and badges and I wanted to be a cowboy. So I wrote a Western and I wrote um, it's called Innocent Hearts. And it's the first one I wrote. It's not the first one that was published. I think it was published probably fourth. And it took place in the West in the around the 1860s or so. So like historical Western. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it features um, an 18-year-old rancher uh, who's, no, she's about 20. And the young woman she gets involved with came from Boston with her family. And her father was going to start a newspaper there. They're both very innocent. You know, when you're right in that era with two young women in particular, you can't you know, you really can't use the language we use today. Sure. So um, anyways, that's the first one I wrote because I wanted to be the one with the horse, the guns, and the girl. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> and so at the time, so you had, you said you started with Ann Bannon and was there a sense of like, of romance as a genre? Did you know you were writing in, you were writing something called a romance? I knew I was writing a love story. I didn't really think of it as a genre. Because I wasn't really thinking about writing and publishing at all. I was just thinking about writing the stories that really moved me and with the kind of characters and the kind of situations that that really touched me. And and I was writing the characters that I wanted to be. You know, one of the, the next book I wrote was a police officer. Um, which is Safe Harbor, which was the first book that was published. And so that's the next one I wrote. Then I did a police procedural stories, the Justice series with cops. Um, So throughout the 80s, I was writing these books. And I'll I'll tell you a story, (laughs) which I have told a couple times. (laughs) In 1988, I decided I would try publishing one of them. So I sent it to Nyad Press and the 
submission procedures was a lot different then. You had to send them a little query and tell them about your book and your writing experience and all that sort of thing. And my only writing experience was medical papers. Um, but the publisher at the time would then call you and say, I would like to read your manuscript. So she called me on a Sunday morning at 730. In the morning. <laughs> oh, sure. And I should I, I should preface this story by saying that I have a tremendous amount of respect for this person. And without her, many of us would not be here. So she called me 7.30 and, and I told her I had read every book that they'd ever published. And she said, well, send your manuscript and, you know, let's, let's see if you've been washed in the blood of Nyad. So, okay. okay. Whoa. I send it, right? I'm going to start using that phrase, people. <laughs> Have you been washed in the blood of faded Nyad? Yeah. Fine. Yeah. So I waited and I waited and waited. And I'm doing my office hours one afternoon at the hospital. And my secretary gives me this message and it says, Barbara Gurrier called. And I'm like, oh, so I run to my office and I call her back. And she says, well, you know, we're, we're, we're interested in publishing this book. She said, but it's really not very good. And she said, and, <laughs> and she said, you know, you're, you're kind of a mediocre author and you'll probably never be anything more than a mediocre author. And I thought of my face right now. (laughs) I know. I'm like, (laughs) please remember what I said about Barbara Gere. She is one of my heroes. Okay. And they didn't like the fact that I opened the book with a scene where the major character is at a party and she is drinking a little too much and has a history of using drugs. Now, this was 1980, right? Right. Because me, I write dark heroes who are wounded. And because eventually the process of falling in love allows them to heal those wounds, they have to start there. She wanted me to change that. Um, and I thought about it and, and, you know, I didn't want to do that. And I said, you know, I am really honored that you called me, um, but I don't think I want to do this. And there was complete and total silence on the line for like 30 seconds. <laughs> I don't think anybody had ever said no. Yeah. Barbara, hello. <laughs> and so um, that was that. And I was so mad. Yeah. I was so mad that I went home and I wrote another book. <laughs> wow. Um, so that was that was really that was really inspiring. Yeah. Well, you know, but I think this is really interesting. I think for a lot of romance writers, often this this story to- is told, this kind of I gave it to a gatekeeper. And the gatekeeper said, no, no, you can't come in here with this, this. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it it happens with, you know, you can't have a character who's, uh, you know, has a history with drugs. It happens with you can't have characters who look, love, etc. the way that these characters do. And these gatekeepers often say, well, that's, it just doesn't sell or it's just not, that's just not what romance no is. For it. it doesn't follow the rules. And those of us who have succeeded Many of us have succeeded because we've said, no, that's not a good rule. I don't, I don't want to be gatekept in that way. I think the other, the other thing is, if you, if you really believe in what you've written, and you've written it because you have something to say um, in a particular way, then that's not the right place for your book. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think in 1988, maybe it wouldn't have sold. Maybe it wouldn't have appealed. She certainly felt that way, and Barbara was very successful. Right. Um, and in later years, we were good friends, and she was kind enough to tell me once that I was a mistake on her part. So that that was really nice That's of her. Nice. Yeah, yeah. That is nice. <laughs> You're the one that got away. Vindication. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I began sharing the things that I had written um, through fan fiction, which was is to answer a roundabout way to answer your question. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the first time I had really started sharing the things that I had written with people I didn't know. With, with people that I had no idea how they were going to respond to the things that I wrote. But it was a really energizing, kind of exhilarating experience to put, put the things I had written out there and have people comment on them and, and like them. And, and I became enthusiastic and developed a, a big fan fiction following. I was writing X-Files fan fiction. Oh, right um, on. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and Perfect. A good... A good fandom too to be a part of yeah sure, it was right? great it was it suited me really well and I had created fan fiction with an original character called Marshall Black who became Scully's lover and people afterwards have said 
I started reading, watching the X Files, but I couldn't find Marsh in the stories. <laughs> they were looking for her. <laughs> so I started a website and I put the original fiction that I had written all those years ago on my website. Does this still exist? Yes, it does. Um, on my redfic.com website. Okay. okay. It's still there. Three publishers contacted me and wanted to publish my original fiction. Um, just out of the blue. And I really, well, naively, number number one, I said yes to everybody, which was a bad mistake. Sure. And number two, I, I had to think really hard about whether I wanted to do that. I, whether I wanted to hand it over, whether... I wanted to sort of give away ownership of this work because I understood that being published, that's what happens. And that is what happens. And I think that as authors, we, we have to understand that, that we enter into a partnership that isn't always a partnership because we, we have similar goals, but not always the same goals. But I said yes, and I loved the process. Um, as soon as I started publishing, I wanted to understand everything about it. And I wanted, and that's what led to me eventually starting my own company. Yeah. So talk a little bit about Bold Stroke Books and how that came to be. It, it pretty much grew out of my experience with publishing with these small publishers. And, and I call them small publishers um, mostly because of the model. And it's not in a negative way at all, but they were POD publishers, relatively small. So that everybody means print on demand. Which is not what it is today. Today, print-on-demand pretty much rolls right over into all of the pretty much normal distribution, but at that time, it didn't. What year do you think this was? About 2000. Yeah. And the first, Safe Harbor was published in 2001. Do the publishers still exist? One of them does. That was Regal Crest Enterprises, and it's just this past year uh, changed hands and I believe changed names, but some okay. of the same authors. But the other two, one went out of business very quickly, and the other one went out of business after she failed to pay anyone royalties. Uh-huh. Um, well, something. Yes, yeah, that, that happens. That will happen. They, yeah. <laughs> that, that does happen. <laughs> so I very quickly realized that the model wasn't going to work because it limited distribution and it limited exposure of the titles. And I learned that from going to some bookstores, particularly in Provincetown. And one of my first books was set in Provincetown. It's Safe Harbor is the first in the Provincetown Tales. And they wouldn't order it or couldn't order it because of the way it was being produced. And I thought, this is not right. And it's worth saying Provincetown is like a premier like vacation destination in the summer for many gay Amer- gay and lesbian Americans, right? Like that this is, is true. like it's like my brother and his partner were there like this summer. It's like ground zero. So was I. Everybody went back as soon as we could and get that's out. It. If this is <laughs> so what I'm saying, this is what I want people to understand. If Provincetown couldn't get their hands on this book. Right. So I just think it's really important to like kind of place that in Yeah, the context. And that said to me that there's some this model is not going to work. Yeah. And it wasn't just about my books. It was about all of our books. Because if queer authors didn't have access to the same kind of distribution and exposure and marketing that everyone else got, we would not reach our readership. And that, to me, has always been critical. To that end, let's talk, can we talk about like in tradition, what we would call traditional publishing today, the kind of big five at the time, there were many more than five, but <laughs> now the there's like house. four and a half. Or <laughs> yeah, something. Right. It's just the numbers are dwindling. Um, what did queer romance look like there? Or queer fiction even. Or, I yeah, mean, maybe queer I mean, romances and even. In the mainstream? Yeah. yeah. Did it exist at all? Uh, not much. I mean, if I think back to that time, I will say this. In the late 60s and early 70s, mainstream publishers were publishing, mostly in paperback. Mm -hmm. um, And there were a lot of queer works featuring both lesbians and gay men. For a brief period of time, Fawcett and the paperbacks, that's where Ann Bannon's books were published. One of the very first lesbian romances, A Place of Our Own, was actually published, and I don't remember which mainstream publishers. But then it it disappeared, and I'm not sure why. When was Sarah Waters writing? Like, when was Tipping the Velvet? I would say in the 90s. Okay. Remember, it's also British. Yeah. And oh, not sure. traditionally a romance. 
mean, her books are historical works, and that's how they were marketed. That's how they well. kind of okay. And then Anne Allen Shockley was writing for Avon before Avon was HarperCollins, but when Avon was a Pulp Fiction, you know, house. Yes, and that was 1971, I think, the early 70s. Yeah, right. So that it was a very small window, and I don't know what actually happened, you know, culturally, socially at around that time to basically say to publishers, we're not going to sell enough of them. Maybe they just didn't sell enough of those books. Right. Um, I, I do know that over the years when there were several very, very, very popular lesbian authors, for example, particularly writing mysteries, and they got picked up by mainstream publishers, they didn't make it. Um, they didn't sell enough. To, to continue to publish with them. And I think part of it is audience size. And I just think, you know, it's a smaller audience. Okay. So we have these small publishers in the early thousands, early 2000s that are trying to make a go of it, but they can't get the print-on-demand books into stores. And then you think to yourself, what? I think we need the same model that everybody else has. So I very naively, since I don't know anything about publishing except what I've been doing, decided I'm going to start a publishing company. But the very first thing I did was figure out how to get distribution. And I was very fortunate that at just about the same time, another lesbian publisher of size had decided that she wanted to start a distribution company. Mm. So she said- And who is that? Bella Books, Linda Hill. Okay. And I'm just a small fry, right? So Linda said- you know, if you're interested, I'm going to start this distribution company and we can essentially umbrella your books into our distribution system. And I said, yes, which from the get-go gave me mainstream distribution. Mm -hmm. So we've, all of our print books have always been distributed like everybody else's. And then the challenge became getting the people at the other end to actually buy them. Right. Yeah. That's a different story. But so we've had mainstream distribution from the beginning. And that gave the authors that I signed, I think, the best chance in, you know, for international exposure and to get into bookstores and libraries and places that they couldn't at the time. Right. So how are you finding authors at this point? Because obviously there, there's no shortage of authors to find, but how are you, how, what's the vision at this point for you? I'll tell you the mission statement. Okay. There, there were two things that I wanted to do. I wanted to publish quality queer fiction and I never... I did not want to only publish lesbian fiction. So my goal was always to publish queer fiction that was good stuff. And I wanted to create a platform to support authors and help them with their careers. So that, that was my two goals. Um, and that's what, that's what we've worked on since the company has started. Early on, most of the authors that I signed were people that I had met at conventions and fanfic places. So a lot of them came out of fan fiction that first year. The, I think every single one of the authors I signed had been writing fan fiction. And then as we began to create a profile and our books were out there and we were going to events and people were getting to know us, we began to expand and it's been years since uh, some of the authors still write fan fiction because they really like it, but mm -hmm. they're not coming out of the fan fiction community anymore, not in, in any large numbers at all, for a, at least a decade, probably more. I, th I think one of the things that's really changed is if you would ask me in 2000 if like a lesbian romance was for me, I probably would have said like, no. But now I do feel like it, you know, that romance readers who love romance read all kinds of romance as bold, as those times have changed, or maybe you feel like they haven't, do you still think there's the perception that like queer, the queer fiction and romances that you're publishing are, are only for queer readers? Like, do you see that that's changed on your end or is that just me being like pie in the sky? It's hard because as you know, from a demographic point of view, you can't pinpoint who sure. is buying a book. Right. But I think overall, there's not very much crossover. Um, I know that there is some, there's certainly, when I was writing fan fiction, I know that there were people who would write and say, I'm straight so that I would know that and say, but I love it. People tell me that they give their books. My authors tell me they give their books to people in the office and some of them really like it. So, but I don't know that those are people who are seeking out these works, 
but it's very much like if you know you look at how how do people find books it's very often word of mouth or a personal recommendation and i think that you're probably far more aware of what's you know out there i think the average reader would still think this is not for me. I, I won't understand it, or I, I won't relate to it, or it, it's not my life. Right. And I don't want to. I just want to say I don't want to suggest that like you should be writing for like the straight gaze. Mm-hmm. But I just was curious if in the twenty years you have seen a, a difference. So I just wanted to not sound like. A I joke. mean, I can tell <laughs> from our reading community because we have a really vibrant web store and we sell a lot online and we've really pushed for direct to customer sales that it's mostly still queer. But again, you know, I don't know, but I think it's probably a tiny percentage. I would love it if it wasn't. I mean, people have often said, oh, well, you know, probably it's men buying your books. Hallelujah. I would love for men to buy my books. Please buy my books. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah. But it isn't. It's lesbians and, you know, other queers. We're sponsored this week by Radish, Romance That Feels You. Radish is a comprehensive romance fiction library penned by talented, popular writers. Bottomless content, one cute app. So what I think is interesting about Radish is that aside from being a kind of huge catalog based on many, many, many tropes, it's a really, really well structured. Oh, it is a romance reader's dream. I mean, honestly, if you haven't played around with it, it has... Everything is so clearly organized and really easy to understand. And I feel like they, they at Radish, they really have the finger on the pulse of what a romance reader wants to read and the most popular tropes. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of conversation right now in romance, in the romance ether about tropes and why we love them so much and, you know, why we're also compulsively brought to them. And I think uh, Radish gets that. And, but also, I think it's a pretty cool system. So the way that Radish works is um, you pay per episode, which is a little bit like a chapter. Um, but you don't actually pay for the whole book. You just pay for uh, usually about the first 10 or 15 chapters or t- 10 or 15 episodes are free. And then there are coins to pay for the rest of the book if you want them to go quickly or you can just wait or you can just wait because a new episode will release every hour. And that's really great. I think I found that I really love radish when I'm running errands, I'm waiting for the car wash, right? Things where I can just like, I only have a minute or two to read something and I can get to the end of the chapter, but oh, then I'm home and the next chapter is available for me. Yeah, and if you are a chaotic reader like me and you read lots of books at the same time, this is actually pretty great because Radish will remind you when a new chapter is available of any of the, you know, 25 stories that you're reading. So anyway, if you're a romance reader, and we know you all are, and you've never tried Radish or you've been thinking about Radish, uh, give it a try. Our friends there are offering 24 free coins when you sign up through the special link radish.social slash fatedmates. You can use those coins to read a book that we've recommended here on another episode, or you can try one of their exclusive episodic series that just go on and on like soap operas. Either way, we think it's something any enthusiastic romance fan will want to check out. Thanks again to Radish for sponsoring our show. At this point, you're you know, really starting to leave a mark, right? I mean, this is your one of Bold Strokes becomes a premier queer publisher, one of the ones that people in the industry have heard of and know and trust. And so I'm curious at this point, like, who's your community here? Like, who are the, who are the authors who you are feeling are, are your, you know, family here? Who are the other people in publishing who are supporting you? There are. When I started, there was a, there was a lot of support. I think there was, when I started Bold Strokes Books, it was 2004. So queer publishing was still very fragmented and small. Um, You know, there was one big gay male publisher, Allison, and then there was Nyad out here and then Bella, which was Nyad's, Nyad became Bella when Linda bought it. And little little here and little there. So everybody kind of felt like more of a community than we do today. 
in a different way. It was fragmented then because we were geographically separated and probably financially separated, and we didn't have the avenues of marketing that we have today. So there was a fair amount of support from other publishers. Most of the authors came out of the reading community. Mm-hmm. They were they were reading these books. They wanted to write these books, and that's where they came from. Now they're coming, I think, primarily, again, they're all readers, but they're coming internationally. Not people that I have individually met. Early on, many of the authors I met mm-hmm. at events and conferences and could talk to them, and they would pitch to me. So there was a much more one-on-one very early, but now we're bigger and we get lots more submissions. So I don't personally know everyone. Our authors are super tight. Um, They all, when we have a newbie, all of our authors contact them. We put them in contact right away. Um, It's really important, as I'm sure you know, when you write, it's a very solitary experience. And we really try to create a community. I want them to know that this is a real company it doesn't exist on a, out there in the ether somewhere. This is a real entity. There are people behind it that work to you know, help them publish their works, help them better their craft. We introduce them to everyone. For me personally, my wife, who basically, when I said, well, I think I'm going to retire from medicine and start this company, <laughs> and I have no idea if it's going to do you know, anything. And she was just finishing her postdoc, and so we had to move. So we sold our car and we sold our house and I didn't make any money from the company for almost three years. Just put money in because you got to put money in Mm -hmm. to, you know, publish those books and nobody pays you for a long time. And I was really fortunate. The people that are with me now have been with me from the beginning. Many of them, my editors, my graphic artists, the authors, we have a very low attrition rate. People do not leave. Thank you. (laughs) Um, You know, very, I mean, people stop writing, you know, they life moves on or they find that maybe the model doesn't suit them, but not many. We have, I mean, I looked at our attrition rate and it's really low. So you've talked about like the authors, but what do Bold Strokes readers tell you about like what it feels like to have this space for them? I know that they are very devoted All of the authors and myself have really active social media platforms, so we hear from them Mm -hmm. all the time. But more importantly, we try to do as many in-person events as we can um, so that we can meet the readers, and it's really important to do that. And we, for example, every Women's Week, which is a week in Provincetown, starting with Columbus Day, we do a book event for five days, and we have... Many readers who come back year after year after year, we do, it's all free. We do readings, we do panels, we do signings, we do chats, whatever we can do that they enjoy. It's for them. Um, So we get a lot of positive feedback. And for me personally, as an author, um, I've received countless emails from people of all ages who've said how important it is for them to see in fiction the life they wish they had or the life they do have that others don't know about. It's tremendously important for marginalized communities to be able to see themselves in a positive way. Probably one of the earliest and neatest experiences I ever had was I was in Saints and Sinners, which is an event in New Orleans. And it was one of the first erotica readings I did in public. And it was okay. It was a mixed group too. So, you know, okay, I'm reading to the guys and I'm reading to women. And afterwards, this young woman who was probably 15 came up to me with her mother to tell me how much she loved my books. And she said, oh, above all honor, it's one of my favorites. And I'm thinking, oh man, (laughs) it starts with this graphic sex scene in chapter one. Um, And it was awesome. I mean, that was like, it was so incredibly gratifying to know that this young person was there with her mom and had found this book and it meant something to her. Um, And all of us, all the authors that I publish have experiences like that. So let's talk about challenges though. So it's not easy to start a business. Um, (laughs) It's not easy to start a publishing business. Uh, That is for sure. And then you have on top of it, starting a romance business 
in a world that, in a romance world that can be very gatekeepy and conservative, I think we mm-hmm. would say, in in a lot of ways. So um, can you talk a little bit about how it is to be Radcliffe in the world of romance? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I was nobody to start. I think that almost everyone has to adjust their expectations. And I didn't have any. Um, I didn't set out to be a best-selling author. And what I wanted to be was a good author. Um, I wanted to get the books to people who wanted to read them. That was my goal. My goal was not to sell 50,000 books or 500,000 books or to make a lot of money because I honestly did not think that I would. So I didn't have the expectations that I think sometimes other authors do, particularly today. I think that a lot of authors think they're going to sell a whole lot of books and make a whole lot of money. And generally, that doesn't happen. I wanted my company and my authors, and I'm being a little possessive here, to have everything that everybody else had. So I thought, well, I should be part of the RWA. So that's one of the first things that I did. One of the very first things that I did to get exposure was join the RWA and go to the RWA, which was terrifying. Because I didn't know anybody. I didn't look like everybody else for the most part. I didn't write what everybody else was writing. Nobody was talking about what I was writing. And this was just another one of those experiences where you don't fit. But it was also exhilarating because, you know, I went to to the classes and the seminars and this is the stuff that I needed to know. So it was amazing. And. And so then I went through all the hoops so that the RWA would recognize Bold Strokes as a legitimate publisher because we ticked all their boxes. And I made sure that we ticked all their boxes so that we could begin to build a profile as a legitimate, significant publisher of queer fiction. Um, And every chance I got, every venue that I could go to, I fronted the company. I went there and I said, this is who we are. This is what we do. We're really good at it. And that's been, you know, that's, I think that's my job. My job is to create a profile of the, for this company so that the authors who sign here will have that benefit. So looking forward then. Do you feel like we're on the precipice of anything? Do you feel like, I mean, what are your hopes for what romance will look like in five or 10 years? I mean, how have you seen positive change that you think will continue? Oh, I think romance has changed tremendously. I mean, and as historians, if we're looking at, you know, the history of romance fiction, we can go back to Jane Austen, but really it's very compressed in terms of what we as contemporary readers are looking at 50 years, maybe. I mean, certainly for queer romances, we're looking at 50 years. That's just a little tiny piece of time. And yet so much has been crammed in there. And it's for us, for queer romance writers and and queer authors in particular, our entire industry really parallels social change. I mean, the more visibility, the more exposure, the more authors, the more work, um, the more things we're writing about that are relative to, relevant to the community. So, I mean, I think that what we're seeing in romance fiction has changed unbelievably from 50 years ago in terms of sexual content, gender diversity, the issues that are dealt with. That The power of romance that most people do not appreciate is that you can write about anything. You can write about all the challenges of human life in a way that readers will find approachable, that they will relate to, they will think about. There's nothing else that does that. I'm a little prejudiced, but still, (laughs) it's an incredibly powerful genre. And that's been very true in terms of queer romances, where initially we were dealing with the challenges of coming out, what it meant professionally for someone to be queer, um, to to have a queer relationship that wasn't hidden. How do you deal with families? How do you deal with religious, you know, prejudices? Um, and then that began to change, and you don't see as many coming out stories. We still do. We still write them because people are still coming out, and people are still coming out in places where it's not safe. But romance has expanded, and now we deal with gender diversity and challenges for you know YA, queer youth. And I think that's only going to continue. I mean, 
nothing is ever going to stop the romance genre because it deals with human relationships. It deals with what's most critical in our experience are the relationships in our lives. So I don't, it's never going to stop, but I think it will continue to transform as the issues that we face as a, as a community, as a civilization change too. We say all the time that romance really iterates on like the time that it's in. When it was the AIDS crisis, mm-hmm. do you, was queer romance responsive to, I mean, I, again, it's like, did queer romance even exist in the same way? Was that, especially as a doctor, did you see the way that there was like fear about HIV? Did that play out in queer romance? It, it played out in queer fiction, but I think that if you look at queer romance, it's just like romance in the mainstream. It's predominantly female-oriented predominantly written by women with the expectation that the readers will be women so that the men were writing about it, but that you were seeing it more in the context of the mysteries that they were writing or the general Mm. fiction that they were writing. And I'm not going to say that I didn't see a lot of it in lesbian fiction. Certainly I think in the, in the nonfiction, in the essays and, and the other works, but in the fiction per se, um, I would say it was secondary. And there is that divide, but there's, you know, there's that divide in, in, in always in romance, what women are writing about and what men are writing about or what women are writing for men to read. So you said earlier that you said, I, I didn't have expectations. I didn't have expectations. Um, but I'm curious because at some point, at some point you did become a name that people know in the world of romance. And I wonder if there's a moment or, um, when, at what point did you realize, like, oh, I, I'm Radcliffe. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing a thing, and people know who I am. And I, I ask this, and I, I've asked this of several of the people who were interviewing for this series. When did you know you were amazing? Because we are, <laughs> right? You are. <laughs> okay. I, I don't know that I'm amazing. People <laughs> tell me that I am one of the most determined and self-directed people that they know. And I think that that is true. I also have a sense of my own worth, um, which I think is probably why I said no to Barbara Greer back in the 1980s. But I didn't know what I would become as an author or a publisher. I only knew that I would do my best to do it right And that if anyone could do it, then I could do it. I mean, that's kind of like, you know, we have a saying in surgery, there's always room at the top. And I believe that. It's it's hard for someone who didn't train to be a writer, who doesn't, I have no background in writing or literature or any of those things, um, to believe sort of, you kind of have that imposter syndrome a little bit at the beginning because I came out of a totally different world. So external recognition of my work, for me personally, was important. Um, and it bothered me. Yes. Now, it, do you know what the Lammies are? The, Lam- the oh. Lambda Literary so, so The Lambda Literary Awards are kind of like the Ritas. And it really bothered me the first few years that I was publishing that I didn't get nominated. Um, really bothered me. So can you explain um, how does the Lambda work? Because we, of course, right. in romance know how the Rita works and it, you know, it has a lot of problems along the way. But how, does, how do you get nominated? Well, you can submit your book just like you do to the Ritas, um, which are now the Vivians. And then they basically, if you nominate it, they'll review it pretty much the same way. Was there always a romance category? Because that was my question, if if this is a category they had to add. There wasn't at the very beginning. There were only a few categories, but there has been for many years. And there's always been a little bit more of a literary event, a literary bent as opposed to genre fiction bent um, in those awards. But they do, they do have genre categories. So if you send your books in, they will review it. And then you get, you become a finalist and, you know, then you win. And so I, I never got to be a finalist and I couldn't figure out why that was. And it wasn't until we really, I started the, the company got bigger 
and the company had some recognition and more of my titles were out there and they knew who we were, that I, I won a Lammy. I can't remember the first year, <laughs> 2005, 2006. That meant a lot to me. Now, some, some people say those things, you know, you know what they say about awards. They are great. That's what they say it's about fun to put them on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it meant something to me because it said to me, at least the people who are looking at similar works, you know, see this, see this. They see me. I became visible. So that that was important. And I also have to say that I think that there is a a massive difference between the Lambda Literary Award and the Rita or the Vivian in that um, you know, the the discoverability of queer if I'm looking for great queer romance, I'm going to go to the Lambda Award and look at the winners there. I don't really feel like romance readers feel like, I'm looking for great historical romance. I'm going to go check out the Vivians. You know, not not because those books aren't maybe great, but... Right. They're going to go to the bookstore and look at the table, right? Well, I will tell you that one of the things that made the biggest impression on me was winning the prism. Because that's not my audience. That made a difference to me. Sure. That, you know, um, they didn't know me at all. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm, a, you know, a name on a book that they would not recognize. Mm-hmm. So I knew that when I won that, that that said that my work was a good work. And that meant a lot to me as an author. In terms of, I guess, the thing that makes me feel like I've made an impression in the publishing and, and the kind of the world of queer fiction is all the authors that I've published and how well they've all done. Mm-hmm. Um, they have surpassed me on every level hundreds of times. And that, when people say, what's your legacy? That's my legacy. They are. Um, and so it doesn't matter, you know, if I'm forgotten, they won't be because there's too many of them. Mm-hmm. When we do think about your books, though, do you think there's a hallmark of like what makes a Radcliffe mm-hmm. romance? I've thought about that because we talk about branding a lot. And I think so. Yeah. Um, I remember that I read at the York Lesbian Arts Festival in the UK or in the mid two two thousands, I guess. And, and I read, um, and the person who was moderating said, oh, it's all about the characters for you, isn't it? And, and I looked at her and, and I said, of course, <laughs> because I think that, the, I mean, that is to me what it's all about is the characters. And I think that that's what pulls the reader in and holds the reader. So I think that they remember my, I know that readers remember my characters because they write to me and they talk about them by name, like they're real people. Um, I think that when I think of my work, then I don't know that readers will actually recognize it, but I write archetypes. I specifically write hero archetypes and I always have, and that gets back to the you know, the little kid who wanted to be the sheriff and who wanted to be the one, you know, I wanted to put women in positions of authority and power. Um, so I write about positions of responsibility more than power. I like to write about people who are responsible for others at cost to themselves. Um, to me, that makes a hero. So many of my works will, and they're not all military or law enforcement, um, but they're people who have assumed responsibility and they're generally wounded. So I write wounded heroes who are saved by love. I love it. Because that to me is a romance. That, those, oh, that's what I wrote agreed. read as a kid and that's what I write. I mean, is there anything better than that? <laughs> no. no. I'm a simple woman. Yep. No. Totally. <laughs> so do you have a book that you feel readers, do you have a book that... Um, is a, is the most popular with your readers? You have one that is a re, a fan favorite. I totally do. I totally do. <laughs> and we I mean, all we all always, do. We all make that face. <laughs> and is it like one of the first ones you ever re- the first wrote? One. Because mine is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, what happened after that? Right? It just <laughs> fell apart. <laughs> this makes me feel better. Mine is um, faded love. <laughs> I wrote it. Um, it was one of the the first ones that was really widely disseminated. So that may be part of it, but it was published in 2004. Um, and absolutely almost everybody picks that book. I'm going to tell you too, why you, you all are crazy. (laughs) It's because when a person who has been reading, reading for a long time, 
decides to finally write a romance, what they are doing, and every single person who has gone on to write many books after that first one has said, I wrote in this book the things I wanted to see. Yeah, and I am going to tell you right now that is why it they resonate with readers, not because it's the best book you've ever written, because it is like the book of your heart. Yeah, and our hearts are all looking for a lot of similar things. So I, it's I, <laughs> it's not that we don't think you've grown and changed and written great books. It's that those that first book is often so steeped in like the kind of longing for the story that you desperately wanted to read. That is it why. Is. It's a love So letter. why can't we, we do it that. again? I know. What have you <laughs> yes. done for me why lately, we Jen? <laughs> well, because look, then you all are like, okay, but now there's a market and now there's the possibility of disappointing readers. Right. And now I have to find new readers. And I have to write it's better sentences. Great. Yes. Right. That's and I, you know, I have to pay attention to my point of view. Exactly. Sorry. Head hopping. Sorry that? for explaining the world to you two. I don't know what is even going on. Um, it's the first book I wrote with a, with a kid. And I think that's, it was one of my earliest books, but I didn't want to write children because I was absolutely certain that I couldn't write children, but I decided that I would. Not a young child, but I think when I started, she was nine. I've written six five in this universe since then because these characters are so popular mm-hmm. and i i it was a it was a book about family and i think yeah. that that's that's what people really loved i mean it was a a romance a really you know emotional romance but it was also about family and community so it hit, hit a lot of buttons that's the one um that that people like the most i think um if i one of your questions was if I could pick one book to be remembered by, I think it would be one of the ones I wrote most recently because I think it's better written. So I'd rather be Mm -hmm. remembered by that. (laughs) Um, And it also kind of comes full circle for me. It's um, my take on um, Du Maurier's Rebecca, which is one of the, the most formative books of my life. I read a lot of Gothic romance. That's when I was why young. you love a wounded hero. Right, right <laughs> totally. there. I mean, You're that's your so low. <laughs> that's imprinted on okay. you. <laughs> but yep. is the cover a woman running away from her? <laughs> because that is be. <laughs> my no, It isn't, as a matter of fact. It's this one right here. It's this one. Unrivaled it's a medical film. romance. But it is, it has many of the themes of Rebecca. Um, I actually, the other one is Jane Eyre. And one of the first books I I wrote is called Love's Melody Lost. So one of the very first ones I wrote is based on Jane Eyre. And this one is Du Maurier. 66 books different in between. (laughs) Um, But they're, yeah, I really like gothic romances. Well, the book is unrivaled. Because your legacy, you feel like Bold Strokes is such a part of your legacy. I wonder if you could talk I have the same question about Bold Strokes that I do. I did about your own books. Is there one moment of Bold Strokes that you can point to as like, this is the time when we knew we would succeed at this? Like, we knew that we could make this work. This is the book that we knew, or the author. Is there is there some sort of turning point for you that you can point to? The answer may be no, but... I, I think the answer is no, really. Um it's it it's it's an organic sort of body mm-hmm. of people and work that simply has grown and never stopped um but from the very beginning when there were just 5 of us and then there were 10 of us and then 25 of us we were connected and i think that that's what made me realize and and our books were really good and people really liked them and i mm-hmm. think that i think that i think the success of our early titles um, sort of confirmed for me that we were on the right road. Mm-hmm. And we've continued to really push um, and have a lot of the most popular authors that are publishing, you know, writing queer stuff today. And, and we're expanding all the time. And we're, we're, we have many more diverse authors and diverse stories. So we're growing. We're, we never have stagnated. So you talked about sort of the discoverability problem and, you know, print on demand. And so when the Kindle came online, when eBooks really became a thing, and for those of you who are, you know, five years old or whatever, I'm sorry, I don't mean that, I'm old. (laughs) Um, You know, I remember for years they were like, there's going to be digital books one day. And we're all like, whatever. And then boom, there were. Did you, did that, 
help with discoverability? Did that change your business model? Yeah. When books became available directly to people? Yeah, totally. Um, I've, okay. I, I actually, um, I, I, I'm a big numbers person. I believe in the numbers. And so I've looked at a lot of these things and presented some of these things. And okay. when the Kindle came out and then the iPad shortly after, it became very apparent to me that we needed this platform. And I asked our ebook tech, who at the time was just making PDFs that we were selling from a web store. Sure. Mm-hmm. So I got a contract with both um, Amazon and iTunes right away. And I said, Tony, I said, we need to convert our catalog. Well, we had 800 titles then, and she did it in six weeks. What? Oh, wow. That's unbelievable. And there you go, and the, right? There you go. And that, see, when you're, when, when, you have your, when you're an independent publisher, yeah. you can move. So nimble. The next yeah. year, we saw a 30% increase in our backlist sales, in our sure. backlist title now, sales. what year do right. you feel like this was? This was to, 2010, 2011. Yeah. It was right. I mean, sure. that felt like that. It was electric that it time. It was so. And it we, was and electric. And it was the Wild West in a lot of ways, in that if you had a Kindle or you were the, an, if you had a Sony e reader, which is what I had to yep. start, you were just yep. reading whatever there was. I mean, they're just yeah. the. Yes. I think people who now come to romance and come to independent publishing have no frame of reference for like how little there was at the beginning, which mm-hmm. is why. So yes. many of these authors who and publishers who are on the early um, crest of this early wave adopters. were yeah. making so much money. I mean, because we would we would read everything. The the thing that was so important for us is that we could reach the community that didn't have access to us before. Um, right. it, it's been both a blessing and a curse for queer publishing because I think that digital publishing has destroyed the network of queer bookstores. Um, when, when I was, you know, in the seventies and eighties and nineties, there were probably 1200 feminist and queer bookstores in the United States. And now there's probably less than 10. I mean, they just cannot survive because there's not enough concentration of readers. Um, women crafts in Provincetown is one of the oldest still existing and you know, I mean, they're still going strong, but Giovanni's is gone. I mean, all the, in all the major cities, they're gone because there's just, you know, there's not enough in that one place to buy print. So we're reaching more readers, but it's flipped the paradigm. So ebooks are selling much more than print, which is true for genre fiction and romance in particular, which everybody knows. Um, and that's a loss. That's a tremendous loss for us not to have those bookstores yeah. anymore. Where is the community finding books? Well, they find them online like most readers, sure. but very fortunately for us, they find them with us because, you know, we have um, we have our own web store. We send out all our new, new release newsletters. We discount our titles so that they can find them. We do daily bargains. Um, we do every possible thing we can to get our books to our readers. But interestingly enough, the vast majority of readers are still getting them outside of our direct connections. Mm-hmm. They're still getting them, you know, they're looking on the internet, they're hopefully going to bookstores and finding them there because we still do release all of our titles in print so Mm -hmm. that, you know, and libraries, we have a pretty good library, you know, distribution, both ebook and paperback. So, you know, they find them the way everybody else finds them. Yeah. But it is sad to lose the community of booksellers. It's very tough. And also we didn't talk about this, but you have, you have one of the largest collections of lesbian romance in the world, in your house, behind There's two, you. Behind There's two thousand like books right there behind me. This. I'm going to take. I'm going to take a picture <laughs> of you. <Let's> take a, <laughs> yeah. This is a little tiny piece of the set eight bookcases that I started collecting every single one that I could find throughout the country after that first book in 1972, and then I went back and found some of the kind of the older ones. Um, and then, very honestly, probably eight or nine years ago, one I ran out of space. Number two, very happily, there were so many coming out that I couldn't read them all at once. You couldn't do it anymore. And so a lot of them now I just read on Kindle or I read on the iPad. But, um, you know, I, I, 
I have them. They're they're 40 years old now, some of them. Wow. But this is this is this is the lifeblood behind me, you know. This this is what for our community. This is what you've bathed this in is the blood of life giving. <laughs> that I am bathed in the blood. <laughs> well done. What a way to end. Ragnar, this was amazing. Thank you so much it for was joining amazing. us. Thanks for telling us your stories. Oh, I I hope it was enjoyable for everybody who's listening to. I, if people aren't interested in this, then they just aren't us because I can't get enough of it. I know. I could talk about it forever. <laughs> forever. Forever. Yeah. yeah. I have a feeling that every one of these <laughs> interviews is just going to be They're amazing. better than the next. <laughs> like, it's crazy how I, great they all are. It really is amazing. I think one of the things that really struck me, there are so many about this conversation, is once again the, the real importance of representation. Yeah, and also this, the idea of how she thinks about her own books and the archetypes that she writes reflecting herself and other people. And talk about somebody who understands why she's sitting down every day. And I think that is a struggle for some of us, but it's not for her. And I don't, interestingly, I mean, not to spoil who else we have coming and what else we have planned, but I don't think, I think one of the things that I'm already seeing just so early in the, in the conversation that, the conversations that we're having is these people all know why they sit down every day. And that is a huge piece of the puzzle, I think. I do just want to shout out also the, we talked about this during the Sandra Brown episode or after the Sandra Brown episode, but again, this sense of community, this idea that the work for so many of these trailblazers is to lift up other voices and to help other people come to the table. Yeah. Um, and that's really cool. This, this question of, um, like, the, the, okay, so the losing of queer bookstores. We talk a lot about, like, okay, the Kindle revolution has meant that, like, your reading can be private. But that in this particular case, it has also taken away a space that has been so powerful in the queer community. Mm-hmm. And when she talked about not being able to, like, put books on the shelves in P-Town, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? I mean, and so that whole question of, like, books on the shelves is one I think that you and I offline talk about all the time. Where are people finding romance on the shelves? And that is something um, that is even more urgent. And I think really um, it was so interesting to hear that perspective from Radcliffe. Well, and this idea of losing queer bookstores being scary in a lot of ways, like this idea that these bookstores, and we all know this intuitively as readers, that bookstores, libraries, these are usually safe spaces for us to do our exploration around identity. But for queer kids, for LGBTQIA plus kids, these are spaces that are, when they are lost, they are, they are a loss, a a more powerful loss. This is also um, one of our first Trailblazer episodes where someone had a really, uh, like, different full-time job and was Mm -hmm. writing on the side, right? So, you don't know who else we've interviewed, but or those people had, didn't talk about their other job. But, you know, being a, a doctor and then becoming a romance writer as sort of just for— And publisher. And publisher, right? And so that journey, I think, um, also just goes to show that romance is so powerful for so many people that, you know, it's a way of really expressing something that's, like, deep in our hearts. And, and I was just really interested in hearing— um, and hearing that, I, I was, I really like that. Can I also say Radcliffe was the first writer we've had who we've talked across all four seasons where we talked about writing and she spoke about it as something that she did to relax that she never expected anybody to look at. Right. And right. I... I'm really charmed by that, and I know that she's not the only one out there, but often we fall into this mythology of, like, well, people write in order for other people to read, but Radcliffe was really writing for herself first, and I think that also gets back to this question of representation and identity and experience, but um, I think that's really fabulous, and I think if you're out there and you're just writing for yourself, that's fine, too. I, yeah, and I think one of the things, and we have had Christina and Lauren on to talk about fanfic, um, 
we we have talked with Adriana and Alexis, who are also big fanfic people. And uh-huh. Adriana especially has talked really explicitly about how fan fiction, these are spaces where marginalized characters can get the full treatment of their humanity. Mm-hmm. And so it was also really interesting to think about like the ways in which like those are avenues where we are going to have so many amazing writers coming up through as I wrote this for me because I wanted to see these characters have a happily ever after, or I wanted to see them experience love the way I feel love. So I just was really, I think that was not a surprise to me at all to hear that she'd had a little dabbling in fanfic also in her yeah. story. Those cowboy books. I love yeah. it. I want them. <laughs> Anyway, everyone, this is Faded Mates. You have been listening to a Trailblazer episode. We're doing those in addition to our regular read-alongs and uh, interstitial episodes over the course of season four and maybe beyond. We're trying very hard to add to the romance history here, um, along with other podcasts that are doing the same thing. Uh, You should head over, speaking of other podcasts that are doing the same thing, to Julie Moody Freeman's Black Romance podcast, where she has been doing this for several seasons with black romance writers and uh you can otherwise hang out with us fadedmates.net you can find us on twitter and instagram at fadedmates and at fadedmatespod respectively you can find gear and stickers and links to other cool stuff at the website and otherwise head over to your podcatching app your favorite one and like and follow us there and you will never miss an episode of us in your ear holes Have a great week, everybody. 